comrades, welcome to the first episode of the Sunflower Socialist podcast. My name is Brendan, the Sunflower Socialist, and let's get into it. The 2020 campaign is now underway, and we already have eight major candidates for the Democratic nomination, and it looks like four more who will soon be entering the race. It's probably not going to come as a huge surprise to anyone listening to this podcast that I'm supporting Bernie Sanders. That's probably a given. But I do want to take a few minutes to look at the other candidates, and for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to be doing this based on the day that they entered the race. So the first one that we're going to take a look at is John Delaney, the former Maryland congressman. Delaney announced his campaign over two years ago in July of 2017, and he didn't run for re-election to his House seat in Maryland because he wanted to focus on his presidential campaign. However, I'm not sure why. Delaney is incredibly moderate. He's running on a platform promoting his record of bipartisanship, and he said that bipartisanship is more important than achieving progressive goals. He is against Medicare for all, he's not exactly friendly with labor unions, and he's very pro-business, so I'm not sure why he's even running. And, unsurprisingly, he's already floundering despite being in the race for two years. He's been practically living in Iowa, yet in the latest poll, he's only pulling around 1% in that state, and he's only raised about $5 million. Elizabeth Warren, by this time, and she's been in the race for about a month, has already raised $11 million, and that's just in her exploratory phase. So John Delaney can probably just be dismissed right now. The next one up is Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts. And I actually like Warren for the most part. She's solid on a lot of issues like taxing the rich and Medicare for all. She's an unabashed left-wing populist. And if Bernie were not about to enter the race, I would probably be supporting her. If he came out tomorrow and said he was not running for president, I'd get behind Elizabeth Warren. But that being said, there are some serious issues with her. For starters, while Bernie is a democratic socialist, Warren still believes in capitalism and market-based solutions. She wants a market-based solution to climate change, and she thinks that we can make capitalism work for the quote-unquote middle class, which is the term that I think needs to go out of use. But she is at least talking about the right issues. She wants to give worker seats on corporate boards. She wants to tax the extremely wealthy. And she is talking about trade justice. These are important things. But she still has that serious issue. She is not divorced from the capitalist worldview, and that makes me very reluctant to support her. And then there's the whole issue with the DNA test. She has apologized for it, but the issue that I'm going to have with it is that Trump is not going to stop with anti-Native American slurs and his attacks against her, and that is only going to further marginalize Native American people in this country, and we really need to be avoiding that. So that's the serious issue I have when it comes to Warren. The third candidate is Tulsi Gabbard, the congressman from Hawaii. Tulsi is a member of the Progressive Caucus. She endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016 and has a pretty good voting record. However, she's a very complicated politician and comes with a lot of baggage. When she first started off in politics back in the early 2000s, she was a fierce opponent of LGBTQ rights, particularly marriage equality, and it should be noted her father, Mike Gabbard, a state rep in Hawaii, is still rather homophobic. Tulsi has apologized for her past statements, and her voting record seems to have improved, but a lot of her staff comes from the anti-LGBT groups that she was a part of with her father. She is also rather blatantly Islamophobic when it comes to talking about terrorism as an issue. She is strongly supportive of Narendra Modi, the far-right prime minister of India, and has support expressed for the Sisi dictatorship in Egypt. She has historically been fairly pro-Israel and spoke at a couple of events hosted by Christians United for Israel, KUFI, and she also supported a resolution calling for a two-state solution on condition that Palestine be completely demilitarized, and she still opposes the BDS movement, but today she seems to have had some of a breakup with the Israel lobby, and a lot of Israel lobby people are very opposed to her. 
She's running a campaign focused on opposing U.S. military intervention abroad and regime change, specifically U.S. intervention in Syria and continued U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. And this is attracting your more anti-war Dennis Kucinich-type progressives. And while I sympathize with that to an extent, I think it's a poor strategy if you want to be president, because right now people are more focused on things like jobs and health care and not Syria and Yemen. She's already having a lot of issues with her campaign. Politico reported she was uh, her campaign was beset by turmoil, and her campaign manager left a few weeks after she announced. So things are not off to a good start with her, and I don't think that she's going to get very far in this election. So sorry, Tulsi. Up next is former HUD secretary Julian Castro, the identical twin brother of Congressman Joaquin Castro. He announced the day after Tulsi entered the race, and he's running on a platform that includes universal pre-K, immigration reform, and Medicare for all. And he's voiced support for Green New Deal. That being said, he is pro-balanced budget, supports pay-go, and is pro-free trade. And he hadn't really said much about Medicare for All until he announced that he was running for president. But since he's placing so much emphasis on Medicare for All in his platform, I'm willing to at least take him at his word and believe that he supports Medicare for All in the genuine sense. I personally don't think that he's actually running to be president. I think he's trying to raise his profile so he can be vice president. But that's just my theory. And regardless, I don't actually see him being the nominee. So moving on now to number five, it's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Gillibrand is kind of hard to decipher, in my opinion. While she was in the House, she was a blue dog. But now she's in the Senate. She's been more liberal. She's advocated for Medicare for all and a jobs guarantee. But she's probably best known for her advocacy around sexual assault in the military and her support for the Me Too movement. She's also voiced her support for publicly funded elections and increased government transparency. But that being said, she has not been very transparent about what her actual platform is. And while she is still in the exploratory phase, this makes me immediately concerned because I don't know if she's trying to shift her positions based on where the wind is blowing or she's trying to shift her positions in order to stake out more unique ground to differentiate herself from the other candidates. Obviously, this is concerning, but she's also been meeting with a lot of big money donors and she, while she's pledged to take no corporate money, she's still been meeting with some big guys on Wall Street about her candidacy. And so while I'm still waiting to see where she goes, I'm already a bit skeptical about her. Up next is the candidate who's been receiving the most attention out of all of them, and that's Kamala Harris, the senator from California and former California attorney general. Harris has been trying to make herself look a bit more progressive while she's been in the Senate, but her background is is questionable. As a prosecutor in California, she was not exactly as progressive as she likes to make out, and she's really been touting this record and saying, oh, I was working behind the scenes on these issues. In fact, she was actually very reactionary as a prosecutor. She supported prison labor, supported the death penalty, and now she claims to be for prison reform and against the death penalty. You can see that she really can't be trusted on these things. She says she supports Medicare for all, but at a recent town hall, but at a recent town hall, she backtracked after saying there was no rule for private insurance in it to say, oh, well, maybe there'd be some. And that's an immediate, you know, that's an immediate warning sign there that she's willing to backtrack on that because that needs to be a line in the sand with Medicare for all. It needs to be a public program. There can be no role for private insurance there, maybe nonprofit insurance, but no role for for profit private insurance companies. They need to go, period. End of story. So that makes me immediately concerned about Kamala Harris. She actually has a decent shot at being the nominee. 
I'm undecided if I would support her in the event she is. It might depend on who she picks for her vice president and on how the campaign shakes up. But she is one that I'm already kind of concerned about, and I will not be supporting in the primaries, needless to say. Up next is Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He is currently in the exploratory phase. He announced it on January 23rd, and I have no idea why he's running. Buttigieg was an openly gay mayor of a medium-sized town in Indiana. South Bend has about 100,000 people, and so that is admirable and noteworthy, but I'm not sure what he's doing at the national stage right now. He did try to run for DNC chair, hoping to reach out to more millennials as party leader, but he withdrew in his nominating speech on the day of the vote and only received one actual vote in the election. I don't see him going very far. I think he's probably one that can be written off right now as an actual contender because he's not. Frankly speaking, he's not a real contender. He'd be the youngest president ever elected, but he's not going to be elected president. Let's just face it. And the last of the announced candidates for president is Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Now, Booker is a very talented politician and a skilled orator. There's been a lot of articles written about him saying how he's very Obama-esque, recalling Obama's hope and change message from 2008. And Booker's message is heavily focused on this idea of uniting America. But the thing about Booker is that he is really spotty on a lot of issues. As mayor of Newark, he advocated for school choice and charter schools and actually served on the board of directors of a pro-charter school group alongside Betsy DeVos. He opposed a bill that was proposed by Bernie Sanders that would allow Americans to import cheap pharmaceuticals from Canada. When he was running for the Senate, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner held a fundraiser for his campaign. And while he's pledged not to take any corporate money, he is very friendly with Wall Street and Big Pharma. Jacobin has actually called him Big Pharma's favorite Democrat. The theme of his campaign so far has been this idea of uniting America, overcoming division. And that is a very generic message. It doesn't really have much in the way of policy specifics. But from the looks of it, he's trying to stake out the center ground, the moderate position. I will obviously not be supporting him for that reason alone, not to mention his very questionable record, but he's a candidate that we really need to watch because not only does he have access to a lot of fundraising, which is a very important thing in any election, but I also suspect he'll be able to win over a lot of voters who would otherwise go to someone like Kamala Harris, and that will cause her campaign a lot of headaches. She is going to have a lot of trouble trying to win over the same voters as him, and I think he will do a better job with a lot of black voters in the South than Kamala Harris will because he has been a very strong advocate for criminal justice reform, while Kamala Harris has that very questionable record as California Attorney General. So if Booker is able to cut in enough to Kamala Harris's support, this could deny her the nomination if she gets that far. That could be good or bad for Bernie Sanders or any of the other candidates. It is far too early to say, but I think this is a competition that you're really going to need to watch, the one between Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, and especially watch in the Southern primaries where the majority of the voters are African-American, and that's where this issue is really going to come to a head. So those are the candidates who have announced and are fully in the race as of the day I'm recording this. However, there are a few more candidates who look likely to enter the race very soon, and I'm not going to talk about all the potential candidates I'm just going to talk about the four that the New York Times lists as being either likely to enter or all but certain. So the first one of the candidates that they list as all but certain or likely to enter is John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado. Now, I'll admit Hickenlooper has an amazing name to say, but his politics are not as fun. He is a moderate and a centrist. He is very into the whole consensus building bipartisanship stuff. 
And he was very hesitant to enact marijuana legalization in his home state of Colorado, even after the voters ratified it. He's actually been touted as someone who had run with John Kasich on a unity ticket against Trump. So obviously, I will not be supporting him since he is running as an explicitly centrist candidate. So no, I'm not going to be supporting Hickenlooper, despite the fact that I think his name is amazing to say. Up next is former Vice President Joe Biden. Now, you've got to admit, it's hard not to like Joe Biden the person. He's very funny, down-to-earth, very relatable at a personal level. Now, if he runs, it will be Joe Biden's third time running for president. He ran previously in 1988, but dropped out in 1987 before the first primary, after it was revealed he was plagiarizing speeches from then-Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock. So maybe he'll have to drop out after plagiarizing Jeremy Corbyn this time. Who knows? Biden ran again in 2008 for the Democratic nomination and dropped out after only receiving 1% in the Iowa caucuses. He also ran for the Democratic nomination in 2008, but dropped out after only receiving 1% of the vote in the Iowa caucuses. Now, it's undeniable that Biden is arguably the most experienced person to be president, and that actually was one of his key arguments back in 2008 as well, even though he had not been vice president yet, that he was one of the most experienced people to do the job of president. But he has a pretty bad record on a lot of the issues, especially if you look at his record in the Senate, where he was incredibly pro-capital punishment and incredibly in favor of tough-on-crime policies, and from the looks of it, he still is, given his opposition to marijuana legalization. He actually was a key architect of a lot of the tough-on-crime policies that came out of the 90s, as he was the author of the Violent Crime Control and Enforcement Act, which led to the explosion in the American prison population. He also voted for the Iraq War. He supports a balanced budget amendment. He supported NAFTA, although he did oppose CAFTA. And he supported welfare reform. And then on foreign policy, he is a self-described liberal interventionist. And I suspect that will be a big issue for his campaign, is restoring, and this is the way they would probably phrase it, America's prestige in the world. Not my words, remember. But what that basically means is restoring our relationship with the other NATO member states and preserving American hegemony at the global stage. So that's kind of what you're getting if you vote for Biden. That being said, I think he has a very good chance at winning the nomination. And I'm not saying that because the polls have him leading right now. I think that the polls right now are pretty pointless. But he does have a good shot just based on name recognition alone. But his role in the Obama administration will also really help him in Southern primaries as African-American voters view Obama very highly. So that connection will really help him down in the South and could propel him to the nomination. The name recognition will help him pretty much everywhere else. But I will not be supporting him. And if he is the nominee, there's a good chance I would not be supporting him then either because of his record on so many issues. We're just so heavily at odds on a lot of things. He is not a left-wing candidate. He is a centrist. He is a moderate. And that's not the direction we need either the Democratic Party or the country as a whole to be moving in. So Biden is not the candidate for me. The next candidate that the New York Times list is Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, who is making some motions like he might run. He's been visiting a lot of the early primary states. Bullock has largely been described as a moderate, so again, not my candidate. His campaign would likely focus on campaign finance reform and addressing income inequality, but nowhere near as well as Bernie Sanders would. And I don't think that he has a real shot because he's just so unknown. He doesn't really have much appeal beyond these small rural states. And I think even there, people are going to go with stronger candidates like Bernie Sanders or some of the more well-known ones like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker and Joe Biden. So, So I honestly don't think he has a real great shot. 
The last candidate that the New York Times lists as being likely to run is Bernie Sanders, and I've already talked about him. It looks like he's going to enter the race sometime this month, and I'm going to be supporting him, so I don't really think there's much more to say about him. I've already talked about him earlier in the podcast. I'm sure there are a couple people who are probably already commenting, hey, what about Andrew Yang and Marion Williamson? Well, I don't really think they merit that much consideration as candidates, so I'm only going to spend a minute or two talking about them. So Andrew Yang, he's a tech entrepreneur, an angel investor, and he's running on a platform of a basic income. That's about it. He doesn't have much other policy to speak of other than the basic income. He's a single-issue candidate, and that's why I'm not really giving him much time a day, in addition to the fact that he is not really noteworthy for anything else. Marianne Williamson is Oprah's spiritual advisor, and she has a you know, progressive platform. She once ran for Congress as an independent and actually got endorsed by Dennis Kucinich and Alan Grayson and Van Jones. So that's noteworthy. And she's gained a little bit of media attention because she's talking about things like open borders and reparations for slavery and stuff. But she's very much this new age hippie progressive that I really don't like. I'm not exactly a huge fan of new age pseudo spirituality and self-help and all that stuff. And she is very much part of that industry. And she is just a strange person in general. She has a bunch of videos on YouTube about things like the metaphysics of Christmas and stuff. She's kind of crazy. And while you might be saying, oh, well, you don't agree with her spiritually, but maybe you agree with her politically. The thing is, if you go to her website and actually read stuff on her policies, her spirituality views are very ingrained within her policy views. The tab on her website about her stances on the issues says life is made up of two dimensions, things on the outside and things on the inside. As people, we not only think, we also feel. We care not only about what is happening to our bodies, but also what is happening to our souls. That's the kind of new age nuttiness that we don't really need in our politics. It's not good, and she is not a real candidate. She's not going to win any primaries or get any delegates or anything. She is not worth taking seriously. I'm not sure why I've given her about two minutes of time. Now, it's too early to say how the primaries are actually going to shape up. While some polls have already been done, these are largely speculative. They include candidates who are either unlikely to run or who have not said anything about running. And polls this early in the process are not that reliable. What is going to be interesting, though, is the debates. If you don't remember back to 2016, there was actually a controversy about the debates because the DNC initially didn't want there to be a whole lot of primary debates because they wanted to help Hillary Clinton, so they didn't want the other candidates to raise their profile. So initially, they had planned there would only be six primary debates, and this got a lot of backlash for them. Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders campaigned heavily for more debates. I think eventually they raised it to 10 total. But this time, the DNC has said there will be 12 primary debates, and they will begin in June. Last time, the first primary debate didn't begin until October of 2015, Admittedly, the candidates began their campaigns later than they are this time around. However, that's still a quite significant gap because the candidates started entering the race back in the spring of 2016, and they didn't have any debates until the fall, which was pretty clearly by design to help Hillary Clinton. This time, they don't really have a favorite. They're actually kind of torn between favorites. The DNC has a few main establishment candidates they're looking at, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, etc., lock, stock, and barrel behind a single candidate like they were in 2016. This time, even the establishment is a little torn. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this shakes up and how the debates go. In addition to the fact there are more debates, the actual rules for winning the nomination have been changed as well. If you were around in 2016 for that election, you probably remember the whole superdelegates issue. And while superdelegates did not decide the election for Hillary Clinton, the fact that MSNBC and CNN showed the superdelegates combined with the pledge delegates in the totals 
created the perception that Bernie Sanders was actually farther behind than he really was. In terms of pledge delegates, there was actually some real contest there, but Hillary Clinton, now the superdelegates have been neutered, and I don't think anyone's going to be counting them at all because they don't get to vote on the first ballot at the convention nowadays. They will only be voting on the second ballot if it comes to that, and in all likelihood, that's not going to be the case. Because there has not been a second ballot at any convention for the Democrats since 1952. Since then, it's only been a one-ballot convention. So basically, whoever wins the most delegates in the primaries is going to win the nomination. So that just leaves the question, what role should the left play in the 2020 primaries? And of course, we should be supporting Bernie Sanders. That is obvious. But we also need to be doing a lot more to shape the conversation around the primaries as a whole. And we should not allow the whole presidential election to distract us from either local elected efforts or from our other organizing activities. There are still workers who are going to be on strike. There are still, still going to be neo-fascist organizing demonstrations. There are still going to be immigrants who are being detained by ICE. We don't need to be fully distracted by the election, but we can't just ignore it either. We do need to balance our time there. So we need to be trying to shape things as much as we can, while at the same time dedicating ourselves to our other social activism. We also have an important role to play in terms of holding the candidates' feet to the fire. Things like Kamala Harris's recent comments about how there might be a role for private insurance in a Medicare for All system, we got to go after her on those. Even if we don't support Bernie or whatever, we need to attack her on it, and we need to make sure that she is clear we will not accept any role for private insurance. If a candidate is saying, oh, well, they should continue deportations or we should give Trump money for the wall, we should go after that candidate and we should be holding their feet to the fire there and saying, no, no wall, no exceptions. That is what we need to be doing in this primary as well as supporting a candidate of our own. I think that's a good place to wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening to the first episode of this podcast. I look forward to hearing your feedback. I'm not sure if I'm going to do a second episode yet. It might be a few weeks or even months until I get it up because I have a very busy schedule. But thanks so much for listening. Please let me know what you think about the podcast. Leave a comment and tell, or let me know on social media. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to check out the Sunflower Socialist YouTube channel as well. I hope to be uploading more content there very soon. And if you like my content, why not consider becoming a patron and giving me some money on Patreon to help make my content better and more frequent? Thanks so much for listening, and as always, solidarity. Solidarity.